0: I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's a show and podcast where readers meet writers, and it's good to have you listening. In the spring of 1966, in the midst of a swarm of UFO sightings in Michigan, CBS anchorman Walter Cronkite hosted a television special that asked whether UFOs were friend, foe, or fantasy.
1: This is a UFO, unidentified flying object. ...popularly called a flying saucer. To responsible scientists and photo analysts... ...they are ventricular clouds, sun dogs, planets, balloons, or mirages.
0: Cronkite was responding to a period of saucer fever... ...in which nearly half of all Americans told pollsters... ...they believed flying saucers were real... And shows like The Twilight Zone and One Step Beyond were big hits.
1: The amazing drama you're about to see is a matter of human record. You may believe it or not, but the real people who lived this
0: story, they believe it. They know. Journalist Garrett Graff writes in his new book about UFOs that the military's interest in UFOs has waxed and waned over the last 75 years, even as serious scientists have pursued more knowledge about intelligent life beyond Earth. Graff writes that in reporting this book, he came to the conclusion that the U.S. government has had a deeper and more abiding interest in UFOs than it has ever let on. But he will explain why that doesn't mean they're hiding the wreckage of flying saucers or the corpses of aliens. He adds... Even today, the U.S. government is surely hiding information from us about its knowledge, beliefs, and working theories about what exists in the skies above and beyond us. Garrett Graff has covered politics, technology, national security. He's the former editor of Politico magazine. His new book is titled UFO, the inside story of the U.S. government's search for alien life here and out there. And he joins us from Washington, D.C., Garrett, welcome. It's good to have you on the show.
1: Uh, Thanks so much for having me.
0: I felt like I had better give a lot of your biography so people aren't like, this dude's a kook. These people are kooks. Why is he looking? (laughs) I'm sure sure that occurred to you as you were setting off to investigate this, yes? Uh,
1: Absolutely. As you said, I come to this as a national security writer, not as a... Lifelong UFOologist, as they are called, or or lifelong trekkie, or anything like that. Um, and, and what got me interested in this, as someone who has primarily written about the, the American presidency, about the Cold War, about the War on Terror, is a sea change in Washington that has taken place over the last six or seven years where you have begun to see serious people in national security circles talk seriously about this subject. Um, There was a series of blockbuster reporting in the New York Times and Politico in 2017 that made clear that the Pentagon had been more interested in these types of activities uh, than it previously understood, there was a wave of Navy pilots, Navy aviators, uh, talking about encounters with flying objects that they had seen that, as far as they understood, defied the laws of physics and appeared to be technologies more advanced than anything that the U.S. government possessed. And that kicked off this modern moment of UFOs what the government actually now calls UAPs unidentified anomalous phenomenon and got me interested Mm. in the history of this subject and there was one very particular moment that I remember sort of mentally for me kicking off this book project which was in December 2020 John Brennan who was uh, then wrapping up the better part of a decade as the CIA director and the White House Homeland Security advisor during the Obama administration, had uh, given an interview to another D.C. journalist named Tyler Cowan, where Brennan said in terribly tortured syntax, uh, uh, effectively, there's something out there flying around. It puzzles us. We don't know what it is. And it could constitute something that to some might appear to be a phenomenon that might constitute a new form of life. Um, And again, terribly tortured, but it made me (laughs) sit up and pay attention because I was like, look, John Brennan has been at the upper ranks of the U.S. government and the intelligence apparatus uh, for a decade. And if there is something that he is puzzled by, it's probably Mm. worth diving into.
0: (laughs) I want to ask you about this past summer, the congressional hearing where a former intelligence analyst named David Grush, who worked with the Pentagon to investigate UFOs, he became a whistleblower. And I watched this testimony. He testified that non-human biologics were recovered in unidentified crafts, and that the U.S. government has those remains. First question is How was this testimony received among the sources that you had developed as you were reporting the book?
1: Yeah. It, this was part of, uh, again, this fascinating wave of increased serious attention around UFOs and UAPs. Um, you know, in the last couple of years, we have seen the first. Congressional hearings, public congressional hearings focused on UFOs and UAPs since that 1966 wave of interest that you mentioned in the introduction here. And this summer's hearing um, with David Grush and two other Navy aviators who had encountered flying unidentified objects Really marked, I think, a turning point in how Congress is thinking about this subject. That Congress is now pushing for much greater transparency by the government. Um, uh, you know, in, in recent years, you have seen Congress mandate the creation of new UFO UAP study efforts at the Pentagon. Uh, Chuck Schumer, this fall, the Democratic majority, uh, the Democratic majority leader in the Senate, has been pushing for a amendment that would uh, mandate a new level of declassification and transparency around what the government does know about UFOs, and that you know Grush's testimony was really startling for a lot of people who are casual listeners or casually paying attention to this subject. I mean, the idea, of course, that the government is covering up uh, alien bodies, alien craft, uh, you know, would be one of the biggest secrets that you could imagine the government keeping. I I think that there are a lot of reasons to trust parts of what David Grush is saying uh, without necessarily endorsing or lending credence to, you know, at least what I consider the the more outlandish claims that he has outlined.
0: Okay, so so more questions about this. When he says non human remains, he doesn't mean. Yes, we found bacteria and it has qualities and properties that we're not familiar with on this planet. He actually seems to be suggesting that these are, in some ways, um, corporeal remains of some other creature. I I can't think of any other way to put it. Yeah. I mean... Are you saying, and that's one of the really outlandish things he said, so I don't believe that, but I believe other stuff he says, or what? I
1: don't think we have the level of specificity and evidence necessary to prove or disprove his claims. Um, Much of what David Grush has been testifying about, both in his congressional hearing and then a series of media interviews that he's given over the course of this year Mm -hmm. has been secondhand testimony, sort of things that he says that he has been told by other people in the intelligence community. And that's how a lot of the mythology and lore around the government's knowledge of UFOs has transpired and unfolded really over the last 40 years. And, and there, there's actually a specific term for it in ufology uh, called fof tales. Not folk tales, but fof tales. Friend of a friend <laughs> right. tales. That these are, you know, I, I heard a guy say, or a friend of mine told me, or I met a guy in a bar who said the following. And that what we have not seen come forward Uh, really at any time in these last 40 years is people who have worked on secret government UFO programs who have firsthand knowledge and have documentary evidence to back up the claims that they are making. Um, And and so for me, um, you know, until we get that level of evidence, I'm pretty dubious of the government's ability to cover up something that would be really as world-shaking a secret as the idea of the existence of aliens.
0: Okay, so if David Grush had been testifying in court, some of what he was saying would have been hearsay and probably not admitted. But you are saying that there is some of what he testified to in Congress and in some of these interviews that you do believe. Is that right?
1: It, yes. It, and, and some of this also has to do with the complexity of translating government speak and operations to the public. Um, so, for instance, one of the things that David okay. Grush has said is that the U.S. has a secret UFO crash retrieval program that has retrieved unknown technology. Now, that sounds like a pretty outlandish and conspiratorial claim, but every bit of that is almost certainly true. The U.S. government does have a UFO crash retrieval program. We have had one for almost 100 years. It's a team of intelligence officers at the Air Force, uh, dating back to what was originally called the Foreign Technology Division of the Army Air Corps in World War I whose job it is to go around the world and collect crashed foreign UFOs. Um, and, and all a UFO is, is an unidentified flying object. So the government in this case is, you know, I think primarily probably collecting Chinese drones, Russian drones, Iranian drones. Um, this was the unit during the Cold War that went around the world and recovered, crashed Soviet MiGs and in World War II was responsible for, you know, retrieving crashed Japanese Zero fighters or Messerschmitt Nazi fighters or Dornier bombers. Um, That team still exists. It's based at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. Um, And so, you know, the U.S. does have a UFO crash retrieval program. And I would also bet that they have retrieved technology that they don't know what it is. That, to me, sounds mm-hmm. like exactly what you would expect a UFO crash retrieval program to be doing. Um, but that doesn't necessarily, to me, make that final leap that the technologies that they have recovered, you know, the U.S. government as a, a organization or as an intelligence community or a, a defense community, believes are extraterrestrial craft. And, and so, you know, the challenge mm-hmm. of talking about something like the claims that David Grush has been making this year is untangling what he's exactly saying and how, you know, parts of it and even most of it could be true and still the answer at the end not be aliens.
0: Got it. So I think that that is good context for something that you write, which is, yes, the government is covering up information about UFOs, but it is, quote, motivated not by knowledge, but of ignorance. And is that ignorance? They don't know what it is. So they're not releasing information about it. Is that right?
1: Absolutely. So there are two very obvious cloaks of secrecy that surround the government's cover-up of its understanding of you know, what UFOs and UAPs actually are today. One level of this is we don't know what level of public UFO sightings are our own government's secret development projects and programs. Um, In the 1950s, for instance, a large chunk of UFO sightings were the secret development of the the U-2 spy plane, which very much was, to Mm -hmm. commercial pilots at the time, a UFO. It was a plane that didn't look like any known plane flying at altitudes that planes were not known to fly at. At speeds, planes were not known to fly. In the decades since, you know, some chunk of UFO sightings have certainly been the development of the SR-71, the A-12 ox cart, the stealth bomber, the stealth fighter. And those types of programs are still continuing to this day. Um, You know, just this fall, actually, um, in November, the Air Force's new B-21 stealth bomber had its first flight test. So we know the government is still developing oh. secret planes that we don't know about. The second cloak of secrecy is oh. the government gets really squirrely talking about its own sensors. So some chunk of UFO and UAP sightings in, in, in the current context are advanced adversary technology being tested against us. Um, you know, these are Chinese drones, Russian drones, Iranian drones. Um, You know, maybe Tony Stark up in his mountain cave is building some type of, uh, you know, advanced system that we don't know about yet. Um, And the government doesn't really want to let on what of those advanced adversary technologies it's detecting, Um, you know, because it doesn't want to give China an advantage of knowing what the U.S. government knows And so we know that some chunk of this is adversary technology because one of the things that the government has said is the Pentagon, since it restarted its UAP efforts in recent years, has announced that it discovered that a a specific UAP sighting was a heretofore unknown Chinese transmedium drone, which is to say a Chinese drone that comes mm-hmm. out of the water and transitions to flight, which was a technology that the U.S. did not wow. realize China possessed. So again, you know, mm-hmm. some of this is our own programs, some of this is adversary technology. Um, but beyond that, you know, you get to what I think is really the core of the government's, you know, unwillingness to honestly discuss UAPs, which is I think John Brennan in that interview in 2020 was probably telling the truth that the government is in many ways just mm-hmm. as puzzled about what UFOs and UAPs actually are as anyone else. And that that's actually a really uncomfortable answer for a bureaucracy to give, you know, to say, you know, we spend a trillion dollars a year on national defense and homeland security and intelligence. And there are things flying above our country that we still don't know what they are.
0: (laughs) Right. Right. Uh, I'm Carrie Miller and you're listening to my Friday book show. I'm in conversation with journalist and writer Garrett Graff. He's a national security reporter. He's the former editor of Politico magazine. And his new book is titled UFO The Inside Story of the U.S. Government's Search for Alien Life Here and Out There. Now, if you're just getting in on the conversation, I do urge you to go back and listen to the beginning because Garrett gives us some really valuable context for what, um, for a lot of the reporting that has been going on over the last several years kind of where the U.S. government is in this and where whistleblowers are in this. And I think it's it's important for this belief that a lot of people come to this subject with that it's all a big cover-up and uh, it's a conspiracy. So I think uh, some facts up against that are important, too. Garrett, you have written extensively in the book about unexplained sightings by military pilots and commercial pilots and average citizens. And I want to talk about the Tic Tac incident because, boy, all you have to do is put that into YouTube or online and all this stuff comes up. Will you describe what it is? And then we're going to hear what Commander David Fravor says he witnessed. But can you describe what what is commonly understood by... The tic-tac incident
1: so one of the things that has come out since this 2017 series of reporting by the new york times and politico is a series of aircraft videos recorded primarily by navy aviators of their encounters with weird objects um you know that's really the only way to to say it um and this Tic Tac incident it dates to 2004. Um, it was taken from a Navy fighter jet that was based at the USS Nimitz aircraft carrier, and they, the aviators, the pilots, were vectored to, um, you know, sent to investigate a specific set of weird radar returns and found an object that they say uh, was defying the laws of physics and you know moving at, at tremendous speed, turning on a dime, operating in ways that they had never seen a technology or aircraft operate. And that it, it is consistent with a series of other encounters and videos, that other Navy pilots have had, um, you know, in the years since. Uh, And David Fravor, uh, who was one of the pilots involved in that, has become one of the very strong public advocates for greater government interest and transparency around understanding what these actually are.
0: Okay. Let's listen to a bit of what Commander David Fravor describes and his reaction to what he was seeing. Now, I have never seen anything in my life that had the performance, the acceleration, and it's moving around left, right, forward, back. The radar immediately starts getting jammed. All of a sudden, it takes off. So does that match, Garrett, what you see on... The video of what this craft, whatever it is, is doing.
1: Yes, and what you, it, it is, uh, you know, part of this is the the videos are not particularly clear. But this is an object. It's called the Tic Tac right. video because the object looks like you know a, a white Tic Tac, um, you know, breath mint, and it, it you know was legitimately puzzling to these pilots and. To me, these are particularly credible witnesses, um, and, and they are part and mm-hmm. parcel of a specific you know, style of witnesses that we have seen across the 75 or 80 years of UFO sightings, um, who are people who have no visible reason to come forward with a UFO encounter. And, and in fact, quite the opposite, that they have... Uh, a lot of potential credibility to lose by coming forward and reporting an encounter with a UFO. And, and to me, that's why these witnesses and these videos are particularly interesting and credible because, you know, there's no real reason if you are a, you know, one of the elite Navy aviators in the US military that you would go out of your way to become publicly associated with encountering a UFO.
0: So if you put on your national security journalist hat and you look at that video, do you, do you conclude that it's a craft, it's behaving in ways that are astonishing to a military pilot like David Fravor? But that doesn't mean that it came from another planet. It could have come from another country and its technology that we're just unfamiliar with.
1: Yes, absolutely. And that's part of the challenge of untangling a lot of these incidents and encounters in hindsight is you don't really end up with all of the data that you actually want or need in order to make a final determination of what something actually is. And, you know, part of the challenge of some of these Navy videos is when you start breaking them down, you know, frame by frame or, you know, stabilizing the video, they turn out actually to be ordinary objects, you know, like balloons or even birds that, you know, sort of trip the sensors in strange ways or are, you know, somehow captured in weird ways uh, during the videos. And and that pilots we like to think of as uniquely credible, but they are also prone to all of the same human uh, fallibility as, you know, Any witness to any car crash, um, you know, where human witnesses are Mm. not the best witnesses and that pilots uh, historically sometimes have misunderstood, you know, the closeness of falling meteors or misunderstood the maneuverability of UFOs because they get confused about the, the speed and maneuverability of their own aircraft. Um, and how that affects their perception of the object. And that this ends up an enormously complicated thing to try to untangle in hindsight, which is why the Pentagon uh, is putting a lot of resources now into trying to analyze some of these videos in more thorough ways to untangle what the underlying sighting actually was.
0: Do I remember right though, from your book that there were some people who showed up and took away the hard drives of where this video had been recorded, and that the secret was kept for many years is that the Is that the incident where that happened
1: it, it, so part of part of this is that many of these incidents come with <laughs> Added levels of mysteriousness. Um, you know, there <laughs> uh-huh. there are reports, as you say, of in some of these of the Navy. You know, maybe potentially trying to cover up the existence of the videos. Um, there are reports. Um, you know, some of these sightings mix radar returns from ships with experiences of pilots dispatched to investigate the ship, uh, investigate the radar sightings. And uh, again, it's really hard to untangle, uh, you know, what really happened with some of these incidents after the fact, and particularly years after the fact, which is how, you know, we're actually left trying to look at a lot of these now.
0: Are there any other incidents and again you write about a lot of them that you find let's say more compellingly mysterious than others
1: yeah to me as as i said there there are these there's a, this specific breed of witness which are credible witnesses who have no obvious motivation to make up their encounter and, and in fact a lot of reason to go out of their way to avoid becoming publicly associated with a uh, a UFO encounter. Um, and, And one historic example of this, for instance, is, you know, I spent a lot of the book talking about the U.S. Air Force spent about a quarter century from the late 1940s through the late 60s and early 70s running a series of programs called Project Sign, Project Grudge, and, and Project Blue Book that studied UFO sightings and tried to untangle what they actually were. And there was an astronomer, a uh, civilian astronomer uh, with Ohio State University named J. Allen Hynek, who was working on the program as a consultant and becomes very publicly associated with, with investigating these sightings. And in 1964, he is dispatched to Socorro, New Mexico, to investigate a sighting by a local Socorro, New Mexico, police officer named Lonnie Zamora. And Zamora was chasing a speeder through the desert outside of town when he hears an explosion and sees what he thinks is a overturned car off in the desert. He starts driving towards it. Um, As he gets closer, he sees two small figures standing outside of it. And as he gets closer, the figures get into the craft and the craft flies away. And there is physical evidence that there was something out there in the desert. There are other witnesses who saw... Lonnie Zamora, within a couple of minutes, including a New Mexico state trooper who was responding to the incident. And sort of, you know, there's a lot of reason to believe that Lonnie Zamora had something happen to him in the desert outside Socorro, New Mexico in 1964. Mm -hmm. Um, What there might be a very simple explanation for it. You know, this was the height of the space race, he was near. The White Sands Proving Grounds, which is a major military test facility. Maybe he stumbled on some type of early Apollo program prototype that was, you know, an early moon lander flying around the New Mexico desert. Except 50, 60 years later, we still haven't seen any sign of a government development project that looked like the thing that Lonnie Zamora saw. So so what did he see? We, we don't know. And we may hmm. never know at this point. But Lonnie Zamora, you know, was a sort of regular local cop in New Mexico and had an incredibly ordinary life before the incident and continued having a very ordinary life after the incident. And, you know, what happened to him? We don't
0: know. You mentioned, so that happened in 1964. And in the introduction, I played some tape from Walter Cronkite hosting this CBS special from 1966. citing UFO sightings had begun to escalate again. In that moment, Gallup is reporting that nearly half of all Americans believed flying saucers were real. And and I want you to say more, if you will, Garrett, about the context of the era, because that seems to be really important to how the debate about UFOs fired up in the 60s. So what should we understand about that period?
1: Yeah. So the modern flying saucer age really begins in the late 1940s. The summer of 1947, there's an Idaho businessman named Kenneth Arnold who is flying around the Pacific Northwest in his plane near Mount Rainier and sees nine saucer-shaped objects moving at tremendous speed. He lands, tells his friends about it, the media picks it up, and it kicks off what we now see as the modern flying saucer age. That summer is the first wave of flying saucer sightings in the United States, there over the course of that summer, you have sightings up into Canada, all across North America, across 34 states in the U.S., and it's a really important moment for the U.S. government because this is the dawn of the Cold War, and they are not particularly concerned at the moment that those flying saucers are aliens. What the army and the military is concerned about is that these are secret soviet aircraft and spacecraft being built by kidnapped nazi rocket scientists because what is the united states doing in the summer of 1947 we are building our own early rockets and missiles with the help of nazi rocket scientists that we uh brought back from uh, Germany and, and deposited in places like Los Alamos uh, and the White Sands Proving Grounds in New Mexico. And we are afraid that the Soviets are ahead of us in that technological race. And that's really what gets the, the military spun up, gets the Air Force interested And it begins this cycle that you see play out again and again, where sort of public sightings inspire government concern, which inspires pop culture interest that those flying saucer sightings in the late 40s kick off the era in the 1950s of alien invasion movies Which is what really sort of links in the American mind the idea of flying saucers with aliens. And that, you know, year after year, decade after decade, there's this, you know, almost sort of self perpetuating, self reinforcing flywheel of public sightings leading to government concern, leading to pop culture interest that inspires future public sightings, and sort of yada, yada, yada. And in the 1960s, this Mm. reaches a real peak. Um, And in that window uh, of 66, you have a uh, young congressman named Gerald Ford, who is uh, representing a district in Michigan where there is a series of UFO sightings that... J. Allen Hynek, the astronomer who's working on this government UFO study program that I mentioned earlier, uh, is dispatched to try to investigate an answer. And he ends up basically being told by the Air Force to dismiss these sightings in Michigan as nothing more than swamp gas and... He doesn't really (laughs) believe that that's the the cause, but says it Mm. in a now infamous press conference. And that becomes, you know, this like that kicks off this storm of public controversy that leads to Gerald Ford calling for congressional hearings that really lead to one of the biggest Uh, you know, sort of waves of public attention and interest in UFOs, you know, up until the modern era.
0: Hmm. You know what's interesting about this? Public opinion seems like it hasn't really changed that much. I I was looking at an Ipsos poll that was taken earlier this summer. 42% of Americans believe in UFOs. And I guess the question I had about that, and I'm interested in your answer, is what do you think the average American who says they believe in UFOs really means by that?
1: Yeah. So part of the challenge of this, again, is disentangling the nomenclature because there are UFOs. You know, all a UFO is is an unidentified flying object. And so when people sort of shorthand this by saying, do you believe in UFOs? Like, the answer is, of course. Like, there are things we don't know what they are. What people sort of generally mean is, you know, do you believe in aliens visiting Earth? Or do you believe in aliens? And that itself becomes a really complicated thing to unwind because one of the things I trace in this book is these twin threads of the U.S. government's interest and study of UFOs here with the advancing Mm -hmm. evolution of astronomy and science and the search for extraterrestrial intelligence across the universe. And the math turns out in recent years to be very decidedly on the side of the aliens. That... uh, Scientists and and astronomers now believe that there are one sextillion habitable planets across the universe. That's a billion trillion habitable planets across the universe. The vast majority of those are so far away as to be, you know, effectively irrelevant to us um but it seems highly likely that the universe actually teems with life and likely intelligent life uh all across you know hundreds of millions of galaxies you know spread for a billion light years the the question then becomes this much more complex Uh, conundrum, really, of is any of that life or intelligent life close enough that we would notice it or be able ever to have contact with it? And that's a much more difficult challenge um, and and one where we probably don't know enough about how physics works Mm. yet to understand the realities of interstellar exploration and travel.
0: Is it Seth Shostak? Yes, one of the one of SETI's leading scientists. He, I, I thought this was so interesting, and it goes to right to what you were saying. He says to you, "If aliens have come here, it's not because they know we're here. They don't." Yeah. What does he mean by that? And does he mean what you've been saying about? Yeah. How many? planets there are out there. Galaxies. Uh,
1: There's this incredibly fascinating, you know, ultimately the story of aliens really isn't that much about aliens at all. It's really a story about humanity and our own search for where we rank and, you know, how we measure up. And to me, there's this incredibly Amusing human-centric view that we are a planet that would be worthy of aliens' attention. That, <laughs> you know, it uh-huh. advanced civilizations would bother crossing interstellar space to, you know, either come. Fly around us, or befriend us, or invade us, and you know, harvest our organs for food. <laughs> um, whereas, what is really emerging in astronomy is that we're probably a pretty subordinary civilization on a uniquely ordinary planet in a pretty young and uninteresting solar system located in the outer suburbs of a pretty ordinary galaxy. And Carl Sagan, who was probably the premier public astronomer of the 20th century, um, he ended up uh, being one of the primary boosters of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence while being one of the primary skeptics that UFOs were extraterrestrial. And his explanation uh, was not that aliens don't visit Earth, it's that statistically, you would expect aliens to treat Earth more as a rest area on the New Jersey Turnpike, <laughs> um, you know, a, a stopover destination between interesting places that they are on their way to or from, and that you would see aliens stop by Earth probably every couple hundred thousand years. So that it's not that aliens don't visit Earth, it's that the thing that you saw out your window last Tuesday night is unlikely to be the one time that the aliens stop by (laughs) in the last 200,000 years.
0: That's pretty great. Um, So, and this goes to that. I, I thought what you wrote about the historical arc of the quest to know whether we're alone or not was interesting because, you know, it seems to be a Western inquiry more than a global one. I think you note that Eastern religions embrace this idea of cosmic plurality. That really we th- this is a frame of mind that uh we westerners have been kind of conditioned to pursue. Do you want to say a little more about that?
1: Yeah, um it, you know, you're you're exactly right, which is the question of are we alone turns out to be both a pretty recent one and a and and one that's pretty unique to judeo-christian traditions because many eastern religions many past civilizations you know widely embraced what's what what's called the sort of multitude of worlds the possibility of other civilizations and 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 and, and intelligent beings across the the universe. Um, and in fact, e- even in the United States, the modern era of the Pentagon's interest in this subject was heavily influenced and driven by then Nevada Senator Harry Reid, mm-hmm. who was a Mormon. And part of Harry Reid's interest in the subject is that the Mormon faith very explicitly believes in the possibility and and probability and and certainty of other worlds across the universe. And so for Harry Reid, um, you know, this was a, a much easier spiritual question to consider worthy of study than many other Western religions take it to be.
0: What is the status right now of SETI? I, I know the funding has ebbed and flowed. What, how well funded are they now? And what do you think the big question is for the scientists that work there? Yeah, the
1: the big question is you know we have studied the you know effective equivalent of a paper cardboard tubes worth of the night sky um for uh for what uh you know for what we would now consider both the what scientists call the techno signatures of life and intelligent life across the universe we just we, we are really really early in trying to understand how we would detect life elsewhere, how we would detect the possibility of habitable planets and and where they exist and what types of, you know, techno signatures you might be able to find that would lead us to think that we have uncovered the possibility of other intelligent civilizations out there at stars, you know, far, far away from us. Um, and, And one of the really profound questions I think wrapped up in this for me is it might be that life and intelligent life team across the universe and have for billions of years, but that we might have missed it, that we might be functionally alone right now. And that has to do again with how young our solar system is. We're about four-and-a-half-billion-year-old in uh, solar system in a universe that is 14 billion years old. And we now understand from the James Webb Space Telescope that it has detected galaxies that formed as little as 300 million years after the Big Bang. And so, you know, it's possible that there have been billion-year civilizations that have risen and fallen. I mean, civilizations far more advanced than anything that we could possibly imagine that, you know, have come and gone in the universe and even potentially in our own neighborhood, galactically speaking, uh, that we have just missed by a few billion years. Um, And and that leads to what is, I think, actually one of the most interesting modern conclusions of SETI work, which is, you know, we have these ideas that when and if we discover intelligent civilizations, it will be unambiguous and clear that we have found that, you know, that we will get a radio message from space, a la Jodie Foster and, and Contact, um, or, you know, you'll have the alien spacecraft appear over the White House and, you know, announce that that they want to be friends or that they want to invade <laughs> and conquer us, you know, the sort of take me to your leader scenario. Mm-hmm. And what we are actually most likely to see is not something that clear and um, and unambiguous we're most likely going to encounter effectively a piece of space trash. The Harvard astronomy chair Avi Loeb talks about it in the context of, you know, an empty plastic bag from another civilization blowing through our cosmic backyard, where, you know, we will be looking up with a telescope or, or some other type of observatory apparatus someday, and we'll see something go by and we'll be like, well, that's not from our Walmart. Whose Walmart did that come from? (laughs) And, you know, we're not going to know whether that's a civilization that's still out there, whether that is anyone who's anywhere close to us, or whether that's a piece of junk or trash that has been flying around the, the, the universe for, you know, hundreds of millions of years.
0: Garrett Graff is a national security reporter. His new book is titled UFO, the inside story of the U.S. government's search for alien life here and out there. Garrett, thank you. Thanks for a lively conversation.
1: Oh, it was a great time to talk. Thank you.